0: Welcome to the Better Future podcast series brought to you by Driven by Design Award Programs. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is...
1: Kirsten Mann. I'm Global VP of Product Experience for Oracle's Construction and Engineering Global Business Unit. This podcast series is a special series where we focus on design in the boardroom. It's a series of in-field recordings and live panels with design giants from around the world. And we discuss how boards are leveraging design to accelerate economic outcomes. In other words, how is design being managed up, down and across the organisation?
0: This episode is a panel session recorded live as part of Melbourne Designer Week. It's a panel of experts without any safety net who talk frankly about design in the boardroom.: Tonight is actually about helping to go and try to spin up as many of the ideas and concepts that come in when boards think about design. We're not trying to go and give you a definitive explanation of, this is absolutely, here's the rule book, this is how it goes," because the reality is there is no rule book. We've got a couple of uh, slides that come out tonight that show you some of the best thinking from design leaders in the world that was delivered at South by Southwest. So they're confused about what's happening, and everybody's confused. But what is interesting is there's some people who have worked out how to go use design to deliver high performance and elite performance for their shareholders, and that's what we're going to be focusing on and talking about, because. Boards aren't interested in average performance. They're about high performance and elite performance. That's why you wind up seeing a stock that has a very high multiple because it has high or elite performance, not because it has average performance. And if you've got that frame of reference, you're saying, oh, that's just a financial factor there. And that's exactly right. If it doesn't add to the bottom line, if it doesn't add to the market cap, you're not going to get a lot of attention out of a board unless it's to do with risk. And so we've seen over the years that accountants and lawyers have been driving a lot of companies, generally driving them into low performance and low yield, and now we're seeing that design, along with technology, is being given an opportunity to go for that high performance and elite performance. And what's really interesting, if you go look at all of the tech companies that you think are, you know, fail fast and fail quickly, they're all actually driven by design now. In 2014, we saw a major shift where... Facebook wound up acquiring a a company called Hot Studio, 110 people that they just hired who were consultants and said, can you now make us to be driven by design? We had, in the same month, Google announced that the Google I.O. conference would be a, not a tech conference, but would be a design conference, and we heard about things such as material design and following on from that you had things like Google Home and the Google Pixel phone. You also had that Microsoft put on a new CEO and they went from being really the shocker of the tech market to now actually being the most valued company in the world who's actually got 17 different products that earn over a billion dollars a quarter. And go, wow, that's pretty interesting to go see. And the reason they're able to do that is because Microsoft make things that people want meet our needs now rather than marketing at us to try to tell us that we're deficient because we're not using their products. The, the cultural change there is dramatic and that keeps going on. Salesforce came out with their uh, with their templates and and their uh, design standards that were in there. All of this happened in February 2015. And it's interesting because you've got to go think what happened in September 2014, that meant that all these companies built up their momentum to go drop it all at the same time. And because of that, we then went and renamed the business that we uh, driven by design because we saw that the boardrooms had actually flipped and they'd gone from actually trying to be an evangelist to talk about how could design drive businesses into all of a sudden you had boardrooms that were driven by design and they didn't care if they were designers or not. They just knew how to use design in a strategic manner to go accelerate their economic outcomes. And not many people know that that's happened. So that's part of what you're getting to go hear a bit about tonight. Design in the boardroom started off as a, as a presentation series I was doing to corporates that was actually called Designs Better Than the Boardroom. And we got a bit of a pushback last year because there was a thing called Me Too and using the word better in the title and being a male and white actually probably wasn't the right thing. So we just shortened it down to Design in the Boardroom. It's a bit snappier too. And the focus is how do we go talk about culture? How do we talk about strategy? How do we also talk about design craft? Who's actually got a degree in design craft uh, that you've you know, gone to university and you're a degree uh, designer? Yeah. That used to be the scope of what design was. Now it's actually moved up and we all know about the design thinking period that uh, that came around, the IDEO push that was there, but now it's actually gone into how do you get it that it's embedded in the boardroom and that's now where the company starts to think. How do we make things that meet human needs rather than go and make marketing campaigns to go tell people that they're deficient and and that their needs that they didn't know that they were deficient about will be answered by using our product? I'm an old creative director and I used to actually make a living turning around and telling people that they were basically useless or inadequate and then that's how we managed to get them to go buy something, okay? It's, that's what advertising's about. I tell you that you're not something... I tell you with my thing you are something, you will go buy it, life's good. And we know that model is actually it's an inefficient model and what we're seeing with companies like Microsoft who have decided to go and actually make products that people might want and they solve their their needs in their life, that they've actually been able to go halve their advertising and marketing budget because people are just buying their products because it meets their needs. And you go, wow, that's an interesting thing to know that that change has happened. And then the most important thing is, who likes when you actually get money that flows in the door? So, So that's where the title is. And how do we make sure that you understand where does the craft of design, because we need to have this deep, masterful craft... It's one thing that the board says we want this. If you don't have people who understand how to do design properly and do it with masterful execution, whether it be industrial design, whether it's communication design, it might be digital design. If we don't have people who have those deep skills, then we don't have anything. And so this isn't about actually having an all conversation. It's either in the boardroom or it's in the studio. We have to have deep experience in the studio and we also need to have deep experience at an executive level. And when you get both of those things happening, we get great outcomes. So I introduced myself very briefly before. I founded Driven by Design uh, around about 14 years ago. We're up to the 10th year of running the Melbourne Design Award and now we also go run uh, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane... Hong Kong, Berlin, Paris, London, New York, the Government Design Awards. We go to a global monthly design award which, uh, uh, which happens called the Now Awards and we've, um, we haven't announced before tonight but we're also going to do a Shanghai Award because who wants to do 19 awards a year when you could actually do 20? 20 just sounds a better number, doesn't it? Because yeah? if you feel like you're not quite there at 19 so we've added Shanghai in there. And the other reason why we've added Shanghai in there is because Shanghai is becoming from a Western culture node inside China yeah. <laughs> it's actually probably the most substantial entry point if you're interested in, in getting involved with the Chinese market and design. There's a great entry door through Hong Kong. There's an equally good entry door in mainland China through Shanghai. Beijing's actually a little bit more difficult and that's actually why we've decided to go Shanghai there. And then as well as running the awards, we make sure that we go and celebrate recognition with people because we know one of the reasons that people leave companies is because they don't feel recognised and they don't feel appreciated. So getting actually that you're actually involved with the project is a really important factor and we see that that actually happens for all of the people who nominate into the awards so i'd recommend if you've got a project out there annoy your manager and annoy your boss annoy the owner of the company and say we want to have pride in this and we'd actually like to go see it be recognized whether it's in our award programs or others but giving people recognition is amazing for them And then to that, we go publish with each one of the awards, we also go do award annuals that are are done around the world, so there's a keepsake, because everyone needs to go to their grandmother or their parents and say, you know how you don't understand what I do? See, it's in a book now, and they say, oh, if it's in a book, then it actually must exist. So between having additional trophies and having the books, we know that we're helping and socialising that recognition, which is very important. And then over my travels over the last 10 years, uh, uh, traveling around the world and talking about design, I came across a lot of people who were this lost tribe of design executives. They might have been in-house and that they were actually the senior vice president for design or experience in a company, or they might have been that they were somebody who was running one of the big design consultancies. But they were all this lost tribe. They didn't have peers that they knew how to uh, meet and talk to. And so we ran a series of design summits in different cities. We ran it in Melbourne, Sydney, New York and London. And out of that came an idea that we need to go do something on a bigger scale. And also that we understood that there was this deficiency in design projects. Because all the people that I meet around design are on an expedition in their life. They're trying to make a better future and they're trying to make sure that they're doing something that they're proud of. And most projects don't allow you to get that pride moment. There's always a compromise in there. And so we themed up this idea of why don't we go to Reykjavik, a place where you've got to go on an expedition just to go outdoors. But we thought, why don't we go off to Iceland, which is a nice fantasy destination, and everybody can get involved with going on an expedition into a better future starting in Iceland. And it's also halfway between the United States and Europe. And so it's a great location if you're trying to work out how to bring people together. So in May next year, we're going to have several hundred global design leaders in Reykjavik. If you want to be involved with it let us know about it Um, but the important thing is how do we go get thought leadership and how do we expand how people are talking about things so that's what we do now I picked up from a couple of our ambassadors some slide deck points that they've had it's from South by Southwest which happened in the last week which should give us some thinking points and also from a Forbes design summit that happened in in Singapore yesterday just going to walk you through those to load your minds up with how some of the uh, some global design leaders are thinking before we get to our panel Stephen Gates, who was here for the Pause Festival, anybody go along to Pause? can I remember. His audience interaction is really good. Okay, fantastic. Next year, put on your uh, put in your diary in February to go to Pause Fest. It's a three-day event here at Federation Square. It's its tenth year. It's a fantastic event because you're going to actually get your mind basically ripped apart. The way I think I talk about it is it's like a whole bunch of ideas got into my soul and just messed it up by the end of it. I don't know what happens at pause until about a month afterwards, so I recommend you go to Pawsphere. Stephen was out for it. He's the head, of, head design evangelist at InVision, and InVision are actually a very interesting company because now they spread across just about the same number of corporate entities that we do from the awards and what Envisioner are finding out is that their customers internally from an enterprise design perspective have varying needs and so they're having to work out what level of sophistication they're at so that they can then work out how to address their customer needs. And here's the model that they've got. Basically there's a design team in a company and then what we've seen in the past is that there was always it was an external design agency and then where it seemed to get to was that design then became part of an internal design studio It matured where it was now getting into maybe the C-suite, there was a a chief design officer and then the companies that are doing really well have actually worked out how not just to tolerate a chief design officer, but they've worked out how to put design across every department and then it's become systemic across the organisation or as they refer, integral to the organisation. We're going to talk a bit more about this later. But then you've got a spectrum that you can see here of where do you go fit, And what the the team at Envision have noticed is that it's the people who are in this integral zone is actually where you start to see the game taking off. So if you went and thought about this in the way that we might think about tennis, this might be like a beginner's tennis over here on the the left-hand side, and then you might be actually on the APT tour by the time you get to the integral. And it's those people that are actually on the tennis tour who are the ones that get to win the Grand Slam. Everybody else is just dreaming about getting into the main game. And I think that's a really sobering point there to think about high performance and elite performance comes when it's integral in your organisation. Now, there's a whole bunch of factors that are going to limit that and if I go look at uh, some people that we went to go hold the Sydney Design Awards with last year, What we found was that the marketing department had worked out how to get rid of all of the innovation and design team, because they'd been busy working on projects, not playing the Machiavellian sports. And by the time we actually got to a month out from the awards, I realised the people that we were working with didn't hold the values that we held, so we actually had to go find a new venue, tell everybody we were going somewhere else. And it was fascinating to see how the culture of the organisation killed the strategy, because they hadn't worked out how to go work on those cultural values. What's interesting, after spending $4 million on a facility as a showroom and and a client um, reception space in Sydney, they've basically choked that whole opportunity because the marketing department wanted to lead the conversation, not actually let the customers go lead the conversation. It's happening all over the place. We surveyed everybody that was involved with Driven by Design a couple of years ago. We asked them out of the last 12 months, how much of your client's work was choked because the client didn't understand it. 57% of all of the output from these design agencies was being choked by the client. That's actually one of the reasons why I stopped running a design studio, because I wanted to kill my clients and I couldn't work out. I don't think I've ever publicly said that before. Yeah, self-preservation. And I thought, hang on, you're the guy who's consistently in this frame. Maybe what you need to do is actually think about how you change the conversation because I'm doing this every week. My clients are almost amateurs because they were down in this zone down here. I didn't have that many clients that were up in either at core or integral and that's changed in the last decade. There's lots of people who are in that space now. So the next person that we're gonna look at, South by Southwest, John Mater. Anybody heard of John Mater before? Okay, so a couple of people. John is actually probably the most sophisticated design thinker when it comes to how technology and design is working. He used to be at Kleiner Perkins, one of the largest VC um, companies in the valley, and every deal when he was at, at Kleiner Perkins had to actually be driven by design, had to be human centered, or it didn't get funding. That's that 2014, 2015 period that that happened. John is now actually um, uh, the head of design at Automatic and he brings out a design and technology report each year. So the, this year's design and technology report will come out next week. John released this to me a bit early. But here you've got somebody who's an absolute doyen saying design confuses both designers and non-designers. And then he goes and puts up all these confusion points You know, it's everything like the value of design in relation to the other parts of the company's operations. Well, that's not an integral um, design-centered company. That's one that's still trying to evolve its culture. You know, you've even got down here, it's uh, uh, success is when design receives the best supporting actress prize, which actually isn't correct. Success with design is when it actually contributes to the bottom line, like it does with Microsoft. It doesn't matter how many awards people like Driven by Design had given Microsoft, if it wasn't actually improving their shareholder value and it wasn't delivering to their revenue, it's not worth anything. And I suppose that's one of the differences between advertising and design. Advertising was always a zero-sum game, whereas design actually has this multiplier factor that's in there. Okay, we'll move on to our next person. Uh, Mara Pacini at uh, PepsiCo. Now, uh, PepsiCo make more than just sugary water. Because when when I first heard PepsiCo were getting involved with this, I had a a bit of a conscious issue. I, I thought, do I really want people who are selling syrupy, sugary water Where do they fit? And then I did a bit of digging and I found out that there's close to 80 brands that they have at PepsiCo. They have everything from, I'll go to the next next worth of of Fender, Mountain Juice. I'm going, gee, it's getting bad. But then I actually found right down the back they had this thing called uh, Quaker Oats. And then I began to look through the rest of the things that they had inside the organisation. And anybody who's ever had a, a packaged product from Starbucks... It's, it will have been designed by the team at PepsiCo and PepsiCo's um, food sciences, and their packaged goods would have been involved with that. There, so they actually got a much broader context than we think. And if you go think compared Coca-Cola with PepsiCo, PepsiCo is actually a whole food services business, whereas Coca-Cola is actually just a sugary beverage business. So very interesting to see what the difference there. The previous CEO at PepsiCo was actually an absolutely huge advocate for design. She actually got Maro to come and join from 3M and then Maro began to go and actually say, how do we make human-centred decisions? Like, how do we go get um, a Mountain Dew and PepsiCo out of college campuses and then we go put in vitamin water? And you say, oh, it's still sugary water, but the sugar content is something like 10% of what the previous drinks were. So how do you go get the fountains in in uh, the college campuses to actually have less of an impact on people it's still a sweet treat but it's not as bad as it had previously been and also how do you get out a canned product or bottled product and get it into a fountain so that it's actually in a reusable cup so really interesting to see them going through the life cycle there I reckon you could say they're probably in the worst offenders in history category but they're trying to go do what they can to become better about that And so there's a real dilemma, do we push these people to the outside and not actually support them, or do we actually say, can you hurry up and get yourselves back into the good books as fast as possible? And that's what I see PepsiCo doing, and they keep doing it month by month. They've just announced that they've got a uh, reusable package um, uh, system, which is stainless steel packaging. That means it's called Loop. You can go to your supermarket, you can actually go, actually return your ice cream container, and it doesn't get recycled. It actually gets washed Remember milk bottles? I'm old enough to remember when milk bottles got washed. So you actually got reused, not just breaking down to its core components. New CEO comes in, but because it's integral to their business, the new CEO turned around and wanted a briefing from the design team, how do I understand this and how do I leverage this? And they've been able to go get great results and it looks like they're gonna continue. Keep moving along here, we've got McKinsey, came out with a report, uh, design index last year. And the key thing was that they said design is more than a feeling. It's a CEO-level priority for growth and long-term performance. And then, obviously, if it's McKinsey and they think it's design, they've got to do a black chart. But most importantly here, if you go look at their revenue, you're looking at the difference between a 3% to 6% growth if you're one of those average performance companies. But if you're in the elite performance, you're up at 10%. You're doubling the growth of the revenue there. And importantly for shareholders, that you're doubling the return that's taking place for the shareholders. This is empirical evidence that the market is performing better because companies have actually got design at their core. When you've got companies like McKinsey, PwC, Deloitte, Accenture, that they've all gone into acquiring the best design studios around, design is mainstream in how boardrooms are thinking. The interesting thing is it's not going to be the craft-based designers that are going to be in the boardrooms. Some people might have graduated through it, but there's going to be other people talking about design and it has a different nature because Kirsten's going to tell us a story later on which is actually about the nature of having a conversation with the board if you're coming from a studio perspective rather than coming from a boardroom perspective and we'll share that with you in a moment. We've also got here that um, uh, an Australian here, Rod Farmer, who's uh, out of Sydney, the leader of McKinsey Design. This was a, a conference in Singapore yesterday and Rod shared with me that um, he a- actually had that to build the capabilities and to enable organisations to design at a larger extent in a uniform and sustainable way. You can tell he's not a copywriter, but I think what he's trying to say there is it's how do we scale this design capacity in organisations? And that's a really interesting thing because if we just wanted to be in the design department, you're never going to have the type of clout that you've got if you've made systemic changes across the organisation. Carrying on from the Fortune Brainstorm Design in Singapore yesterday, Harry West, who's the immediate past CEO of Frog, left there in December. And so who knows about Frog Design and the iMac? Yeah, you've probably all heard of the iMac. Well, that's Frog Design. And then if you're Harry and you've gone through your entire career and you wind up making this last little sentence, uh, we need some of that D stuff, you'll do. And you're one of the biggest design firms in the world and boards are treating you with, you'll do. It shows a, a great lack of intelligence in the boardroom based on their customer mix. Now I know Harry very well and I know some of their customers at Frog were in that elite, integrated, integral to the business phase. Most of them were just down in here an external supplier is making it it look pretty for us. So we've gotta actually work out who we're talking about when we're talking about design. Elite performance and high performance is what we all should be striving for, not average or below average performance. And then lastly here, this is my little bit about how do we actually frame the future? It's what we do now that's gonna make a difference and as somebody had a bike accident a couple of weeks ago, I could live by that. Um, it's how you approach what's ahead of you. It's no point looking at what's behind. And then are we going to make a difference and are we going to make a difference in the next quarter? Or are we going to actually expand our thinking there and try to go and make a difference over a longitudinal period of time, which I think is actually in multiple generations, what I refer to as the grandchildren's grandchildren, which is five generations, and if you're in lower socioeconomic groups, that's 100 years. If you're in upper socioeconomic groups, that's 200 years. Isn't that fascinating you go think between upper and lower socioeconomic groups, there's half or twice the breeding rates that's taking, taking place. But by the time you've got through those five generations, everybody's married everybody. So the people that you thought were the new arrival immigrants have now married the people who thought they were the old establishment, because you can't stop that. Grandparents can't stop that. Remember, we're grandparents' grandparents. You've had the fact that all of those social divides have gone. You've had a whole cultural mix that's taken place. But they're still your grandchildren's grandchildren. And if you're doing things which are biased and polarised by today's norms and and status quo, you're going to damage your grandchildren's grandchildren's prosperity in the future. And it's that sort of longitudinal thinking that gets us to think about humanity-based solutions rather than just quarterly returns. So they're my provocations that I've got. I'm now gonna go introduce you to the panel and we'll take it over from there. So first panel member that we've got here is Grant Davidson. Grant uh, runs an organisation called Davidson Design. took a long time to come up with that name, I think. Um, no, actually, esoteric. esoteric, yeah. They had to do it a whole weekend away to work that out. Um, Davidson Design actually has a, a, a bunch of business units, but when I first met Grant, he was involved with doing a lot of uh, beverage packaging for um, fosters CUB when they used to be in this country in, uh, back at the turn of the millennium. Um, these days they're involved with both um, large and small organisations, but what they do is that they work out how to have a boardroom conversation about leveraging design and, and branding to actually help the business to accelerate to their economic outcomes. Next to Grant is Kirsten Mann, and Kirsten is the Senior Vice President at Oracle's Construction Engineering <laughs> Business Unit. How did I go? Did I get it right? Okay, Kirsten will correct me in a moment. Okay, so it's this major unit. Um, Kirsten's uh, going to be telling us some stories that come from her experience at Census, at MYOB, at um, Aconnex, that then got acquired by Oracle, and that also gives us an idea of how do you shift out of being an Australian company into a global organisation like Oracle, and what does that mean reporting to the board at that level there? Next to Kirsten is Roger Simpson. Roger's a doyen of the Melbourne design industry, but uh, these days he's actually involved with an organisation called Design to Thrive. And Design to Thrive is, is working out how do you go take businesses at an entry point around the around the 3 to $5 million turnover and help them to get design integral to their organisation to actually accelerate their growth and outcomes. So, speakers, get your mics ready because I'm going to get off the lectern here and come and join you. So, Kirsten... Tell me, tell me a little bit about the correct title that you've got, because obviously you must have gone with uh, Rod Farmer there to the same copywriting school. What, what <laughs> is it? It's the senior vice president. We
1: don't get to choose our titles. I'm um, global vice president of product experience for Oracle's construction engineering global business unit. So it just rolls off the tongue.
0: Thank <laughs> you, everybody. <laughs> That's the end of tonight. We've uh, just got through that title. Oh, sorry. Yeah,
1: it's to. It probably matches the number of years I've been creating. That experience is for. So I've been doing this for about 25 years um, and the company I was working for, Aconex, which was a global company already, it was the world's largest SaaS platform for the building and construction industry and we were acquired uh, last year by Oracle for $1.6 billion. So the two founders who I reported into are now $90 million richer and, and, but they haven't bought sports cars and dropped their wives, they're still living quite normal lives.
0: Right. Which is great. Right. They, they haven't <laughs> gone through the, the, the full post-exit uh, no. stage yet. So, so let's get out of that. Did By the way, anybody in the audience who had Oracle shares, uh, sorry, had a shares before Oracle got there?
1: Uh, what were you doing?
0: <laughs> okay. It was so, a good outcome. So Australian tech stocks are worthwhile looking at. Mm. Okay? There's another little one called Atlassian. Have you heard about them? Mm. Who bought Atlassian when it was cheap? Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. So, so there's this movement in Australia, and it's called the tech sector. Okay. It's really high performance. There's some risk in it, but it's something worth looking at because what's interesting with the tech sector, the startup economy in Australia receives something like about 250 million dollars of uh, startup funding a year. The Melbourne Cup has over a billion dollars waged on it every year. (laughs) If you like gambling, why wouldn't you gamble? on the tech sector, mm. because people who bought, you know, uh, the equivalent of cent shares inside uh, Aconex and also Lassian wound up with, you know, $50, $100 shares at the end of it and a much better dinner conversation than your horse lost last week. <laughs> so I, I highly recommend you go do it. There's lots of opportunities out there. Obviously, all advice given is in general in nature and we don't want to breach any laws here. OK. <laughs> do so. you tax advice as <laughs> okay. well? Now, yeah. actually, do we need to do a safe harbour slide for you? Yeah, okay. normally
1: the big thing is that you're not... the big difference was you're never allowed to commit to customers and so every presentation you do has a safe harbour statement of anything you see presented here we will not be held accountable for. So okay. that's it's kind of cool in some ways. But I think the big difference um, for us for being acquired by, and so Oracle the fourth largest tech company in the world um, our area, so our company itself within Oracle is worth five billion um, and we're part of another group that's worth collectively 60 billion. So it's a big organisation, there's 140 40,000 people, so I went from a company that had 850 to 140,000 slightly different in terms of uh, like procedures, operations. What was really interesting was when we were acquired, we thought, where is this going to end up, right? With this Australia company and a couple of kind of crazy Australians kind of leading that. I was on the exec and the exec was largely based in Australia. Um, And what's really interesting is we did this song and pony dance and things, but also they kind of looked at our backgrounds and we had to kind of present what our vision was, where our strategies were, all the rest of it. And so Rob Philpott who is the co- co-founder of a and myself, have ended up running product and experience across the globe for Oracle, for our area. So it's, it's quite unusual that we've been acquired and we've ended up running that area.
0: So will, and, and I'm not trying to go pick you up on what you don't know. I'm just trying to make sure we're expanding your understanding. Who understands the term product when you're talking about a tech company? People familiar yeah. with it? Okay. <laughs> that's about one of the best responses I've <laughs> had out of the room tonight. So that means just about everybody understands it. For those couple that don't, when you go talk about a tech product, something like um, Facebook, you'll talk about their messaging as a separate product to the Facebook wall and then you have product managers that fit in there. And so that they actually refer to these digital products in the same way as you would a physical product. And what's interesting is the people who work in product who are making human-centred products don't think they're in design because there's people who work as UX designers and UI designers who tell them that they're not in the design business. Now, that's crazy... The person who's signing your checks, the person who's in charge of you, you're telling them that they're not interested or invested in the thing that you're doing. Just think about that for a moment. I'm the only designer because I'm the one that's got a degree. If your manager wants to be driven by design, they're a designer. They might be a strategic designer. They might be a cultural designer. They might be a des- – if they don't think they're in design, they're probably not going to sponsor what you're doing. So if we go think of the unconscious bias that comes out of turning around and saying, oh, but you're in product and the people below you are designers – We've got a really interesting stack problem that you've got the board wanting to design to be integral to the business, but now you're getting people dividing up where design sits in the organisation. Still need the masterful design, but we need it all the way up the management chain. So, Kirsten, tell me a bit of a story about uh, when you are at MYOB and you went to the board and you were about to go ask them to go fund a project for you. You went in there with a the slide deck. You were all pretty happy, weren't you? And uh, I'll, I'll make it short for everybody. Did you crash and burn? <laughs>
1: It was one of, you know, when you have one of those moments where you've got this presentation, you think, right, this is going to, we've nailed this because we'd gone and done research, we'd identified the need and we'd come in there and had this product that looked beautiful and, and um, people probably know Zero, right, I think, but that was, this was pre-Zero days and this was, it was called Flow and it was basically a product that was going to take away any accounting. That So it, it kind of learnt socially and you didn't really have to do anything, just ta- it was going to um, be connected to all your bank accounts, all your shopping, so everything would come through, automatically be allocated, and you wouldn't have to do anything, right? So, and it would socially get smarter. Like you'd see what your friends were classifying things out, and it'd get better and better. And so, at that stage, I was going through this whole. We've got to. It's all about delight. Like let's actually make this enjoyable for people versus this chore that people have to deal with their accounts. So I imagine if anybody's a freelancer or you own an agency, the accounting is the last thing you got into the business for. Right, but you have to do it every month or every week. And so it was like, you know, I was trying that pitch and basically trying to appeal to the hearts,
0: more can so than can the minds. I, can I just help frame this here? So the board, and this is based on the, uh, the ASX would tell you that the board is male, pale and stale <laughs> and there's a 20% sprinkling of females in there who might have a pulse just so that there's a bit of gender equity. Yeah. Okay, so you're talking about delight?
1: Yeah, I'm talking about delight. i was saying everybody's got to... This is about, you know, we're, we're basically going to be... People will love this. This will be the first product we're going to have that people are going to call up and loving this product, you know. And it was... it, it delight, was, love. It was love. Delight, well. love, all of this and it was the emotional play And I just, I. just of this thing and then there was just this blank you know p- blink blink kind of thing and
0: I was just like oh that worked out well. How and was it imagining or seeing before you your last ten minutes oh, as in a senior and role?
1: And it was just like okay so you're thinking on the fly and thinking okay none of that resonated whatsoever and I said you know what it's going to get a return within six months of us actually funding this and it's going to be double to what we're actually producing in these p- product categories and suddenly it was like oh, okay tell us more about that. So the delight, yeah, the delight <laughs> none of that was they couldn't give a you know rat's ass. It was basically how are we going to return on this product. Now, the interesting thing for me was you know, as designers and the whole empathy aspect and everything, we want to connect with people and we want to create these products that people love and it supports their lives. But we are dealing with a group of people that are seeing the return. They're looking at those bottom line numbers. So you have to be able to speak to both languages because my team, they needed the inspirational side and the rest of the organisation needed that. But the people approving proving this needed to know that the numbers were sound and what we were delivering on would
0: actually give them more on their bottom line. And and interestingly, um, uh, Rod Farmer at the um, uh, Forbes event in Singapore was saying, until we can go get measurable metrics that actually come out in the financial figures, we're not going to be really able to judge the impact of this. Interestingly, Microsoft can't give you... ...measurable figures that actually is globally understood... ...that that's the quantum that designers put into their turnover. They can just tell you we're spending a shed load less on marketing... ...and people are buying the stuff. That's That's not good enough. But you were able to say that it was actually just this. It will sell faster... And it'll be a bigger market, which seems to have worked for most startups.
1: Yeah, and it it, well, it, it does happen with the startup. And what was really interesting, we ac- we did meet that as well. So it was being re- really conscious about okay, our ass is on the line to prove the value of actually taking this approach to deliver and then report on that as well. So we did deliver with that. We actually got the return in a shorter period of time, and we did have customers ringing us up. It was the first time ever. Like support desk and help desk are normally there and the poor guys are constantly listening to complaints. That's all they do all day and workarounds for software. And this was the first time they had people ring up saying, I love your product. And so that was fantastic. Like for everybody involved in that initiative, it was a game changer. And it, so it, all, it also changed the way that we actually delivered products as well and then we were acquired. So that's another story.
0: So, <laughs> so what was interesting with the MIB story there was that the nouns that, that the board was hearing, like delight... They're not action words for them. They're not verbs. If you want to go sell something, you've got to meet the human need. Okay? Then it sells itself. The moment Kirsten began to go talk about the human need for a board, which was it's about the speed of money and it's about the size of the money, all of a sudden they were interested. So you've got to go think about it, might be nice that it's actually delightful. It might be nice that it's actually a pleasant experience. But what does that result in? Because that's what a high-performance board wants to hear about. A high-performance board wants to hear about financial returns. They don't want to go hear about soft values. They'll entertain the soft values, but if you can't produce some hard results for them, you're not going to get a lot of attention from them. So I think that's, you know, some of the important things that you can get out of tonight is that you're understanding, oh, I'm speaking to a different type of beast. They're still humans, almost, but they're different types of humans and they've got different needs. And if you can't work out how to go and actually meet and talk to them on their terms, it's not going to work. The last, uh, last time we did this in Australia was at Pause Fest. Andy Hoyden jumped up and he, and he was uh, telling us a story about placemaking. So placemaking is the idea about how do you turn around and actually get a property development and get a higher yield out of the property development and most importantly that you sell the back 20%, the back part of the inventory as fast as possible and you sell the front 20%, the stuff that's always going to sell at a higher premium. There are those two factors, and you're just talking finances there. If I've got to hold on to 20% of the inventory for five years, it's bleeding any profits I've got. If I can sell that faster, I'm going to retain those profits. And then if I've been able to sell the front 20% of my portfolio at a higher yield, then that's also helping with the overall project margin in there. That's the sort of language that Andy has. He never says, we're going to put in some more swings and there'll be a nice cafe and there'll be a really good gym there. He just talks about what it's going to do. We've got a strategy that will help you go with the front 20% and the back 20%. All of a sudden, all the property developers want to talk to him. He never talks about design. So one of the mistakes that a lot of designers have is that they all want everybody else to become a designer, which is kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Because if you're the masterful wizard... All you need is that people want the outcomes from the masterful wizardry. They don't have to become you. And then that creates a market supply and demand. The last thing you want is that everybody knows the wizard's trick because now you're out of business because you've lost your IP. Grant, let's go across to you. So tell me a bit more about the the portfolio that you've got. We've seen some projects that have come through the awards in the last couple of years, amazing rebranding projects that are out there, but you've got a much bigger story than that.
2: Definitely. So, the business started 28 years ago. We um, built the business. We have three focused areas, FMCG, corporate and retail, and each of those are specialist teams. And over the years, I think our stats were... worked with about three to 400 companies. We've worked with so 16 of the world's top 100 brands, uh, nine of Australia's top 50 retailers... And I think it's six of Australia... uh, Sorry,
0: 20 of Australia's top 50 ASX corporations. So we've worked at a pretty broad level. So you've got a huge amount of board experience there... ...on having to work out how to satisfy what they commission you to go do... ...and probably exceed their expectations. But I suppose then with with the, the mix of clients that you've got... ...you've then had to be able to go and enable the executives... ...who were that one step away from the board... ...to actually create the return on investment, the justification for the work that you've been doing.
2: Every major branding project must have board, ex- board um, endorsement. And if we're not presenting to the board, then we're empowering the um, CMO with whatever they need to
0: actually go to the board. Yeah. And some of my experience before I was running Driven by Design, I used to pitch direct for a lot of ad agencies. So I was very used to meeting with boards and they're actually really normal human beings... You know, they're just people who have a different set of values that they're trying to go pursue. And what they were always after is, how is this actually looking after the shareholders? What is this doing to actually create current prosperity but also future prosperity? And if you could talk to them on those basic terms, they thought, finally, we've got somebody with a pulse in the room who's able to understand what we're after and it wasn't, it wasn't that difficult. I don't know. Maybe I just knew how to speak their language. But to me it was very easy to go do. And I suppose, Roger, with the, the organisations that you're involved with who are generally of a smaller scale, you're probably dealing with the substantial investors, if not 100% equity holders in the organisation, and you're talking to them about investing their hard-earned and limited capital to go and actually uh, come up with new returns and to change the nature of the organisation.
3: Yes, Mark, that's absolutely right. The people we're dealing with in our program are all private companies, SME private companies. We've got some not-for-profits in the program too, in this Design to Thrive program. And one of our prerequisites is we, we won't deal with them at all unless we're dealing at the owner, CEO, GM level, and with their senior management team. So this Design to Thrive program is built around having the senior management team and owners round the table for all engagements because nothing goes anywhere um, unless you've got the person at the top with the purse strings committed to it as a sponsor.
0: And one of the things I know that, you, I've, that I've heard from other participants in the program is that they've come out with more understanding about their purpose and their values which goes into the the culture of the organisation. Tell us a bit more about what happens
3: there. There's plenty of experience, to say, with this program, which has been running since about 2005, firstly in New Zealand and since 2010 in Australia. If the culture of the organisation isn't right and isn't aligned and appropriate, there's really not many changes positive changes that can be made anywhere in the organisation with regard to design or improving performance or penetrating new marketplaces. So the first thing we deal with is a vision, values and purpose, um, which needs to be developed in a pretty uh, comprehensive fashion with some coaching and mentoring, but it needs to be in the authentic language of the organisation. So the management team... With a bit of coaching and help from us, create their own vision, values, and purpose, which is meaningful. Um, they understand it; it's in their language. It's it's meaningful. It's driven driven right through the organisation. So that's a really important first step, Mark. Culture first.
0: And I think what's interesting about the the size businesses that you're you're taking through the Design to Thrive program is that they're of a nature that you're talking directly to the equity holders, you're talking to the senior management, and you're able to help them to understand how to go do that that cultural change, which is actually, it sounds like it's more
3: cultural development than cultural change. No, it's often cultural change. I think that um, organisations like this, and they're kind of two or three million, up to 80 million is is our range. Some of them have been around for 20 years, and they've had successful businesses. Um, but they haven't necessarily focused on getting the right vision and communicating it right across the organisation. So there's lots of people in those organisations that don't know what the organisation stands for or where it's going. So that's really the most important step. So what's the vision for the organisation? Where is it heading in five years' time? We held a
0: Melbourne Design Summit a couple of years ago and we took uh, three or four of the companies that had come through this program and we got them without their you know uh, mentors and and the people facilitating the program to go talk about the change that had happened and it was astounding to go see the posture for the people who'd come through that they were confident they were resilient they knew there were challenges they also knew how to go and think and approach to get through those challenges which wasn't actually trying to go and react in a knee-jerk manner, but they have actually a good strategic foundation to go and actually work on what they were doing in the future. That's interesting because several of the businesses, we also knew their contemporaries, and their contemporaries still don't have that confidence and they're still struggling and they're still reacting in a, in a um, piecemeal manner. And I think it's that difference between getting up the envision scale that we looked at before of where is it integral to the business... Versus where is it that it's an adjunct to the business? And when it's integral to the business, you're, a- you're able to come back to those vision, vision, values and purpose. You're able to come back to the idea about you're doing things for your customers. And you know the, you know which universe you're in. You know how, where you're um, orbiting around. One of the challenges I see for sales-focused organisations is we'll just work out how to go make another campaign that we can tell people that this is actually the answer to everything and it lasts for maybe three months, 12 months if you're lucky, and then you've got to go back and start again. These organisations I've seen that's come through Design to Thrive and the program before that have got a resilient platform because it's integral to their business, and that's one of the reasons I asked Roger to join us today is because I'm sure for some of you there's actually an opportunity to say, well, how do you get involved with this? How do you actually bring this into the business or for some of your clients? Because the more resilient people are... ...the more likely they're going to be good clients for you... ...or if you're running the design studio for them... ...that it's actually going to be a smoother ride. Otherwise it's pretty chaotic. And chaos is just that's terrible in anyone's life. Nobody needs that. So Grant, how have you seen your clients actually go... ...and accelerate their performance... ...because they've got on board with doing things? And I'm also then going to follow up with another question. Have you seen them choke some of the processes the old adage about
2: uh, board your best friend your worst enemy or can't live with them can't live without them um so in terms of so the first part is how the board helped accelerate projects i mean in many ways in large projects the board's essential because they're the ones that provide the funding provide the support without the board's support on some major major rebrands the project doesn't go ahead so um we actually one one example is a um i was thinking there's a board that was quite a cynical, um, non-marketing savvy board that were very, I won't mention who they are, but full of engineers and very practical, pragmatic. The process of getting the proposal signed off was painful. Um, We had to take out any kind of design jargon, which didn't leave much in the proposal, (laughs) just fee. (laughs) And and, uh, to take out any kind of jargon um, and, and put it into absolute plain speak, it got stripped back, stripped back, Uh, But once the board signed off, and a lot of the board members were involved in the process, um, and once they got involved, the project scope uh, multiplied by 10. (laughs) So it went from strip down, strip down, strip down, we don't really value it, to as they started to see the value in the process, the scope grew, the scope grew. We need this, we need this, and we need it now. Um, So that was a great example of when the board was on board and um, passionate about the project, how it accelerated through, it grew in scale.
0: Um. And the story that you're talking about there where there's the middle management who are trying to go and actually pull out some things, is that's been also reflected in the um, fintech or banking sector. That one of the things that's happened in the banking sector is that they know that the board wants to go and actually be very innovative about the products and services that they're providing their clients and the cl- and the customers want the same, but the middle management are like this doughy sludge that won't move. And <laughs> did I really just say yeah, that? Yeah. Okay, a doughy sludge. It's actually called it's called the um, finance donut. It's a, it's got a name, and and they know that the problem with innovation in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can somebody ring this gentleman? I want to see him do the moves to that phone. You know, that's pretty cool, yeah? Or did you just restrain yourself tonight, yeah? Okay, ladies and gentlemen, please make sure your mobile phones are turned off. So, so the fintech world has actually found out that there's great innovation that will come through, similar to what we were looking at with flow, the, with MYOB. It's not hard to work out to solve human problems, What's really hard is to get it through the middle management because if you can leapfrog the middle management, the board will like it until you then get the middle management who want to go kill it. You know, this is a common occurrence. And if we don't share these stories and if we're not aware that it's happened elsewhere, we'll think it's unique and it's only happening to us. So it's really important to be able to share what is working and what isn't working because it's the fact that, Obviously that they were a little bit scared. Maybe they thought you were going to come in to go put some icing on their cake. You know, because that's, that, that's what a lot of people talk about in design. It's about the style and how amazingly brilliant it is and shiny and wonderful. It's not that. It's actually what it does to solve human-centred needs. Now, there's a certain point in solving those human-centred needs which is about delight, which is about grace and elegance, and that's probably where the style comes in. Not first it comes in to support something which is already useful and meeting my needs and helping to go create that brand definition and to go create something which people will have a a, a non-rational um, emotional connection to. But if it's not working, it doesn't matter how pretty it is, it's still going to be terrible. So the, the engineers, I'm interested in this, I want to drill in a little bit more because, Kirsten, you work with engineers all the time and you probably love them and hate them at the same time. So... You've got past the engineers and then it's almost been a thank God you're here, can you do this as well, can you do this as well? And Roger, do you find that the same, that you get to pass the threshold which is people get past the fear of design and then they start to say I didn't realise what it can enable
3: and now let's accelerate it? It's a realisation of the outcomes, how positive the outcomes are. In terms of uh, building the corporation, changing the corporation, and then they can see lots of other areas where that kind of strategy and process can be applied, and they they develop a level of familiarity and confidence in the people who are doing that work for them, and they just want more. So yes, it's common. My kind of my kind of f- forward comment on that would be one thing that most, especially young designers, don't do is understand the business case for the services that they're providing to their clients. And I think one of the success stories for, for designers is to do the homework and work out the business case for the client to come in with the business case as part of the presentation.
0: Mm. And, and there's a, a great set of videos that Simon Seneca has done where he, and in there he actually talks about where does love start? It's like does love start that you actually turned on this big switch and it was a big proposal or did love start that you went on your first date and then you followed up with the next call and then you remembered something about the person and, and he goes through and he actually explains that love starting is actually a whole range of layers. And I think if we're trying to go and understand how to get that middle management and to get the senior management to love the benefit the design brings, it's actually that they're being introduced to it layer by layer and eventually they'll turn around and become like Grant had where they're becoming the greatest advocates, almost probably saturating the capacity to do the projects because they're doing so much change. But all of a sudden you get to this point where where it's understood. And there's a, another interesting thing that uh, uh, about the, the love concept because there's a, a lyric that the guys at Arcade Fire have which is, where does love go when it's gone? And I suppose the interesting philosophical part about that is confidence and trust in something, we know when it's gone, how do we know to create it? And so the challenge with a board and the challenge with senior management is how do you take away their preconceived ideas and help them to understand what might be the real value of design to their business and you might have to go on a bit of a journey yourself there because you might think it's all about the nice trinkets that are in the shop next door here at the NGV you know designed products or is it actually about the benefit to the customers so it's it's how honest you are yourself and what your you know grounded experiences in what design can go do that's going to make a difference. But I want to go back there to some of those results that we saw. If you go into a boardroom and you start saying that you're going to deliver twice the speed of money or twice the yield of money, Kirsten, have you got attention from the board? You've got attention from the board. Okay. Yeah. If you turn around and you say it's delightful, you've learnt this lesson, haven't you? You don't get their attention, do you?
1: No. And I think the other big thing was also taking on the role of... Um, Educator, in some ways, for the board as well about design because it's not so we never win by talking about design, right? We never say, hey, because everybody is a design I always say everybody's a designer just like everybody's a writer just different people can do it better right everybody thinks they're a designer everybody thinks they're a writer and it's just different degrees but in reality what people actually want to really hear about is what is the customers like what are the customer needs and how and have you identified the outcomes that you'll know when you've delivered to those customer needs so we really focus our conversation around that and what I think if I looked at my experience with boards it's been around so, and getting them to help and insight into the customer for the because org- ultimately, as Mark said, their role is um, delivering shareholder value and we do that by delivering to our customers, right? So, really, when I think about the relationships I've formed with boards, it's always they want to understand the customer and as designers and things, that's that's really where we can help that understanding and also linking that to the outcomes that we'll know will deliver those needs. They're the two things that we've really been able to articulate, string together, show, visually, all of those things, and it's what people get excited about because everybody wants to think
0: about the customer ultimately if you help them. And and that's where you start to get to, if you're thinking about the customer, you're getting into customer lifetime value. Mm-hmm. That is the golden metric for a board. If somebody is trying to go and actually value an organisation, you want to know what the customer lifetime value of your customer base is. And, and they're I not think, people who've just designers, yeah.
1: We can become so now. I'm getting wheeled into other boards by those board members. So they say, "Can you come and talk to this board?" Right? So you get wheeled in, and they're saying, "Can you talk about how you get an organisation to be customer centric?" So everybody's kind of jumped onto this customer centricity and we've heard about, you know, service design and customer experience and all the rest of it. But that is really the thing. Everybody wants to understand how do we become customer centric? And I think by giving people the language and explaining how it can work, people start to exactly to your the earlier points there, when people kind of understand something, they start to feel empowered and they start to have a shared language and they start to push your cause as well. So it's really about how do you demystify and grant it was really interesting about you stripping out the language what happened there is people actually understood the pitch it sounds like in the end because you, we removed all the jargon so i think that's really important how does we, how does the design community walk away from the bullshit that half the time we create with this language and hey these artifacts and really put this in terms that people can understand and embrace and share with us versus we're this special group over here and that was really the interesting
3: thing with the envision thing I think it's kind of make a comment. I think it's a really important thing for designers to consider, and that is, um, it's a waste of time for the board if you're going in talking about anything that could be aesthetics. Mm-hmm. That's the last thing you want to talk about as a designer when you when you're making a bid to a board presenting a proposal or, in fact, presenting a stage of a project to a board. You just don't talk about aesthetics because if you have ten people around the table and you have an argument about the aesthetics of everything, there'll be ten different opinions. So it's not just not worth doing that. You've actually got to mount the argument on a whole lot of other parameters.
0: I remember when we were running a, um, uh, my previous company, Thinking, and we were um, doing websites during the dot-com boom, and we... would ...meet clients and they'd start to talk about the colour of the buttons. We knew it was an account that was ready to resign from. Because if the client was so lost in what the the pursuit was... ...about the colour of the buttons... We we had somebody who was right at the beginning of the scale, or we had a lot of therapy that we had to go take them through, and there were so many opportunities out in the market that we I think we were professional dumpers of clients rather than uh, gainers of clients because it it was there was new business everywhere. And as soon as people began to speak about the colour of the buttons... ...it was like, get the hell out of here... ...because they're actually talking about aesthetics... ...they're not talking about the interaction... ...they're not talking about the customer benefit... ...they're not talking about are we being useful... ...it's are we being pretty. And pretty doesn't serve much. Now, at the same time, you did have to get the colours right... ...but when that was their first order thought... ...you're going, maybe that's actually as far as the depth goes... ...in this conversation... I want to do something with the audience here. I want to go and actually do a little bit of time with you guys and then we're going to come back to the panel to try and wrap some things up here. So we've thrown up some provocations. We've told you some stories that we've got. Surely there's some questions. There's somebody in the middle there. <laughs> yeah, you can be somebody or you're, you're probably more than somebody. You are you. So. Okay, help us out. Who are you? Uh, my name's Indy. I work at um, Principal Design. It's graphic design. i Multi-award-winning principal design, yeah. Um, and
2: we are having conversations about strategy and we're hiring young designers and I'm just intrigued
1: by what you said about designers, talking about the aesthetic. Do you think that education in its current form, and I didn't go to graphic design
3: school and it's unique...
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. But it's a different conversation about design and what it is because all of these young graduates show me their beautiful portfolios, and I'm like, yes, but what have you done? Like, is uni too theoretical? Are we glorifying what the design looks like and the design theory and history and not actually
0: having half the degree on how to sell your design? Okay, I'll help you out, Indy. Globally, it is understood that design education is broken and at least 10 years off the pace for what industry needs. Is that fair enough?
3: (laughs) Um, It it has always been so. I go back to being a design student in the late 1960s, so it's a fair track of time. I've been a professor of design at Swinburne University along the way and there's far too much discussion about the look and appearance and not enough about the outcomes and there's a, a really... There's a very poor concentration in design education globally about trying to discover what's going on in the mind of the end user of the product or the brand or the website or whatever it is you're designing. What's going on in the mind of the end user um, and what's going to work for them and what isn't going to work for them and that's the start where designers should be coming from back to, from the consumer, the end user backwards and that is not taught at design schools particularly well.
1: And I think, um, just for Andy's point there, that you know, with having new designers come in, because they are enthusiastic and you don't want to just drain the life out of them when they've just walked in the door, is, um, as well, (laughs) the hard lessons, you know. Um, But it's also, like, exactly coming through that point. Basically, how do you get them in the shoes of those customers and users? So, we really, part of our onboarding, for example, is people go on site with those customers and actually see what's important to them and can guarantee none of those people on a construction site saying, hey, your interface is looking really sexy and you've got that, I love what you did on that treatment over there. Right? It's it's really about this is the job that we need supported. And they kind of start to, we have found that's a really important grounding point for people coming in. And they move. They start to actually move away. We we involve people. We used to kind of separate the designers from um, understanding what we call the portfolio performance. So we have these monthly portfolio performances, where which are all about you know how we track in terms of adoption, customer satisfaction, revenue, all of those things. All the designers have to sit through that as well now, and it's really important. They and you could see it was like I, I you know you gradually evolve because they would we'd be doing these globally and they would have their webcams off they'd be doing something else the whole time, right? Um, But it's about really getting people to connect to that. And so we tried to work out how do we actually get people interested in this? Because this is what's driving the business and they need to understand that. This is what's put you in the job that you're in and you need to understand what are the levers that are driving the business. So it's just exposing people to as much of that as possible versus just letting them kind of say, focus on this beautiful design that they're producing over here. It's getting exposure to how the business is operating
0: And Indy, I suppose the test I'd use if I was trying to go hire somebody into a studio these days is I'd be actually asking them the way that you do in maths and science. I'd be asking them for their methodology, not the result. Because we're in an experience economy. The value that we're creating is about experiences and if they came up with something that is pretty but it has no contextual experience to it, then it's probably not worth a lot. But if it, if it happens to be pretty and it's also giving a great experience for the scenario that they were looking at, then I think you've got a great designer there because they've been able to consider. Too often we actually focus on design being about artefacts. We're in a post-artifact phase. The artefacts are still important but it's actually the post-artifact, experience that is probably the primary goal that people need to pursue. Anybody else?
2: My name's Rob. Um, we're running a design team in one of the banks
0: here. You um, know hey, uh, we, we owned up. You should own up too. Come on, it's a safe room. Exactly. <laughs> well, fantastic.
1: Uh, obviously we've got we've got great leadership. Um, you you coined something there which I just smell about the doy sludge or the finance do you know
0: that middle management that's just that's called a polygon. Um you know it's not
1: quite quite there yet and has no reporting lines whatsoever what's happening in the in the board and they they do what they do from what they've learned over the last decade and they need to start me work with designers then you said before you don't want people to become designers when you say that what do you want those people to become
0: i'd like them to be empowered to be driven by design not necessarily to become masterful craft designers So they have to have strong design thinking skills. They have to understand the strategy. They have to be able to understand the culture that actually creates great human-centred outcomes. But they don't need to actually become proficient as a craft-based designer to create that. And, you know, imagine the music industry if everybody was a musician and nobody actually listened. Yeah? Design's the same. Be a fantastic museo designer and then have a great audience that appreciates what you do. And the audience says, give me more, excite me with new things. So was there's that, a whole that value stack.
1: in that? Well, I was interested in the question. So was it how do you address the sludge or what was the question there?
0: It's <laughs> that, that a theoretical. It's yeah. not an ANZ. <laughs> not
1: anywhere, I suppose. Was that I the question? You
3: it, there was not a direct question. I just wanted to kind of combine those two
1: statements. But if I had to frame it as a question, it's, you know,
0: there, there's a, there's something we want to do with those people. And
1: then you be more to design. You need to understand the value. You need to have a design mindset. But how do we, leave? we get that sludge there?
0: So I'm going to give you a little story about Camper. Does everyone know Camper Shoes, the Spanish shoe company? In every meeting they have, there's a spare chair, just like this one here, and that's for the person who's not present, the customer. And that chair gets as much of a vote in every decision as the rest of the group. So there's simple techniques that you can do to remind people that you're a customer-centred organisation. One could be to have an empty chair and when everyone says, why is there an empty chair? That's the customer. OK, we know these techniques and there's really good facilitators out there that uh, also understand those. What you want are people who actually understand at their core that you're there for your customers because business is really simple. Investors put money into an entity. The entity does something which attracts dollars from customers, and if it's an efficient entity, little dollars are consumed and big dollars go back to the investors. Okay? It's not that hard an equation. So you've got to be focusing on the customers, and the less friction that there is for your customer to go do business with you, the more dollars that go back to the investors. The less friction that there is in their complaints the more money that's available. So there's lots of ways to have a conversation about delightful experiences for customers that end up in economic outcomes. I, I think, think what's happened is we've talked about them in delight without <coughs> understanding that they're tied to economic outcomes.
1: I also think, like, with that area, that can be quite resistant to change or embrace... Like, if it's somebody's bought an agency and whatever it is, and they're just resisting changing basically and want to be in the old way it's people always like to look good is the bottom line right so if you can either make them look better typically they'll be open to that if they see that end goal but the other thing too is like it's always it's also where are you going to focus your energy because you've only got so much energy to go around so typically what i'll do and i have worked as in a number of large organizations taking that mission on? How do you actually re-educate right up to the top? And it's by showing the examples, right? So if you can find the people who are willing to change, who are willing to embrace and take that journey work with them first, get the example, then other people will start to usually, you know, they want to keep up with the Joneses or the Me Too movement in a different way and basically say, okay, I want to be that as well. I want some of that as well. So find those people who are your, you know, who are going to be your advocates or change agents. Work with those first, get the example on the table and then go. But I think there's a lot of people you will never change initially, so you don't focus on them first because it will just drain your energy. Anybody else?
0: Oh come on! We've given you an hour of quality stuff, and there's no questions. Come on, <laughs> please. Ashton from Cordina Valley to PR
2: Agency. Um, just on the, I guess, like, what advice would you have to be able to change an organisation from seeing design as an external resource all the way through to being integral? What advice or how would you go about
0: that? So I'm going to go back to that Simon Sinek thing about the how does love start. It doesn't start because you went out to an expensive dinner. It doesn't start because you went to the favourite musical or you... It's something that happens in incremental stages. And it's really hard to fall in love with somebody who doesn't want to fall in love with you.
1: But it's, it, there's a really interesting thing there, Ryan. I, it was that census and they, it, what was really, they'd built their new building down at QV, right? and so I don't know who pe- how many people have seen that, but what was really interesting was they did that building based on full-time people on the payroll. Now, half their people were contractors and so when everybody went to move into this new building, it was like we haven't got enough seats for everybody because half the people were contractors. Now, half those people were the external designers. So they had this whole thing of, um, you know, UXs and things that they were hiring externally, they bring them in for projects. And then what was happening was this massive IP drain. So when I came into them, I was basically... They'd had a series of projects on the go and i said... And they'd lost those people because they'd been contractors and had moved on. And so it was also showing those examples and saying, you're just basically bleeding IP here. We need to build up the capability internally. If you really want to own and sustain this growth that you're, you keep on talking about, it's got to come from within. And so in some ways I was probably... Agencies probably didn't like me because suddenly we weren't opening the door to every agency knocking at censors. But we built up a team then. By the time I was there originally on a secondment for maternity and I'd been gone there while I was at NYB still. And so I was there for 18 months. And in that time we went from having... They had one designer full-time to 28 full-time people on the payroll. And that was purely by... Building that example, showing how that IP could start to be shared across with other products, other areas, and constantly talking about the stories and sharing that with the senior executive stakeholders. So it was really a key thing for them. And they basically went on that journey where they actually stopped. They still kind of had agency doing the shitty work and basically the internal people all came and started doing the really interesting work, which was where we wanted to get to. So it's really key about showing IP... (laughs) going out the door if they're just going on agencies. So probably agencies who won't like me.
0: No, actually, so I think there's... because I'm going to tell another story there from Australia Post. Greg Sutherland, who was on one of our panels uh, a little while ago, their chief innovation officer. Greg said to me, oh, if I get another agency that comes in and tells me the creation story of design, I've got 200 of them out the back. <laughs> we know more about design than they do and we'd like them to actually augment our team, not start our team. So I suppose it's actually working out where are people on the journey and if they're needing the creation story, I'd probably go hunting somewhere else. If they're further along that journey and that they're actually beginning to think about having some design capacity internally and then are moving into <laughs> the core, I'd be trying to go pick mid to the top of those four stages there, not the bottom and because uh, it's going to be better hunting. I think
1: it's about linking yeah. the
0: stories for people too,
1: isn't it? Like when people are using multiple agencies and things, everything is kind of siloed, discrete pieces of work. How who, If you're internal and you can pull those stories together, that's really key for an organisation to start to understand that having these people who will share this understanding is going to be our key. And I think that's where people kind of just stay in that, um, you know, I'll get the best idea from this group. You probably go through that a lot, I think, from what you
3: would see. I think that uh, organisations, like the one I think you are describing without naming, um, organisations need to be questioned about what their aspiration is. What's, the, what's their real vision? And we would say, based on my previous design experience over a long period of time and now in the Design to Thrive program for businesses that are Victorian, which is designed to thrive, you have to actually have a mindset that says you want to have the best product, service or experience, not just in south of the Yarra or in metropolitan Melbourne or even in Victoria or even in Australia. You have to aim to have the best one of those in the world and if you don't have that aim, someone will come and come over the top with something that's better. So if organisations have a high-level aim right at the core of their, their, you know, they really believe in it and it's high level and it's, it's pretty hard work to get there, they probably haven't got the capabilities internally to do the work. And that seems to me to be the next step in the equation. What sort of capabilities do you need to change from what you're able to do today to that kind of aspirational level? Then you've got a discussion point about what needs to be added to get design at the core of the organisation and have a more capable group of people doing it, combination of internals and externals sometimes.
2: Um, there's also a couple of different models. We've we've watched the in-source-outsource model and the wave over we worked with Coles on and off for about 18 years. And it's funny there'll be a point where someone looks at the PL and says, why are we employing employing all of these people in the studio? This is ridiculous. Our overheads are so high. Sack them all. And then all of a sudden, you know, us um, design agencies go, fantastic, we pick up a massive volume of work until someone says, look at how much we're spending on outside suppliers. We're going to bring that all in-house. And we just wait for it to come back around again. Um, But I think the the balance, over those years of seeing the different models and what's worked and not worked, I think the balance has been have a core in-house team because there's, I mean, a pragmatist, that you get the efficiencies that you were talking about. Um, There's economies, obviously, is having in-house resources. But make sure you balance... External consultants in in areas of expertise that you don't have internally, you can't buy, you can't get, um, and get a balance that complements the two. I think working across large companies, almost every company we work with on a major rebrand has an in-house design department. So it's about well, how do we work with them to complement that? So generally, what happens is the rollout you don't get anymore. <laughs> that's that's gone. But you do the front end, um, you know, strategy and thinking and plan, and then in-house can do the you know the the rollout.
0: And in the follow-up EDM that we do with this with links and slides... ...I'm going to put a clip in there which is Arcade Fire... ...and this external consultant called David Bowie... ...and they're collaborating on their song Wake Up... ...and if you know the song by Arcade Fire... ...and you go see the magic that Bowie puts into it... ...there's always collaboration benefits that come out. So, so I think it's that thing about working out where you are on the journey... ...working out, you know, how do you build up the internal capacity... How do you inspire people? But collaborations with external experts are still fantastic. And if you thought you had this, the only minds inside the house, you're probably being a little bit foolish there. And if if this room was full of more board members, I'd be telling everybody, do you realise all of the good designers are going to start working somewhere else? And if you don't get the right culture, they're going to leave your organisation. And if you don't empower them... because There are people who have it as integral design... ...and everybody wants to work in an integral design organisation and they're growing at such a rapid rate that they're going to vacuum up all of the good designers and you're not going to have anyone left. So there's a risk now. So it's a matter of are you going and talking about what it does from a financial return or what it does from an opportunity risk perspective and their different conversations based on the context of the group. Gentleman with his hand up here. Oh, it's Nick. Hello, Nick. Nick Esser used to be involved with this. Uh, uh, G'day, Nick. Um, I've got a, I, um, full disclosure, used to work
3: with Mark... Um, but
0: how's uh, the therapy <laughs> <laughs> expensive um, no uh, I'm now working in the public sector uh, working for a big gov agency but um, I have a question I suppose primarily to Roger but to everyone as
3: well how do you So, if, you, if you're sort of existing in, a, in the private sector you can tie developing a culture of design, of developing a Cultural capacity or competency uh, around design to performance, to profit, to a fear of not being commercially relevant. But in the public sector, sort of, and possibly non-for-profit sector as well, it's a little less uh, direct. How do how do you go about building that sort of cultural capacity? I'll start with the not-for-profit. I think um, one of the interesting learnings that we've had from the not-for-profit sector, um, and that's been really, I think, the first not-for-profit we worked with in the previous program was BAPCARE, which is a massive organisation, and we have five or six in this current program. And one of the things that... um, they needed to learn right at the start was they were in a competitive marketplace, that they, they actually had other organisations who were nipping away at what they felt they were really good at and often they were spreading out and going into other sectors and competing with other organisations. So one of the first ways of getting them to um, have a different perspective on how they needed to change over time was to say, well, actually, you're in a competitive marketplace even though you might be doing something honourable like providing disability services, for example. It's competitive. Other people are doing that. Government departments probably spend a bit of time competing with each other too. Um, And and I think that uh, the competition side isn't so um, immediately obvious inside government departments, but I think getting everyone to embrace the culture of giving the best outcomes because all government departments have customers you know, taxpayers and other people that they're trying to work for. So you can start that, that discussion around what's going on in the heads of the people that you're trying to support, that you've got a, a charter to support. What are you doing for them? How would they like it to be delivered to them by you? So going back to them and starting and coming backwards, I think there's lots of opportunities to get them to embrace uh, design as a core.
1: Yeah, I think people change based on two things, right? Like fear is one of them. (laughs) So competition fits really nicely in there. But also that they see something better. You know, they're aspirational in the sense I want something better. And I'm on a board of a non-for-profit and it was um, (laughs) in the disabilities and age space. Um, And what was really interesting there on coming into that, exactly to what Roger's saying, there was this perception that we are untouchable. We've got this huge, and they are. They're large, really good returns, all the rest of it. But for me, it was getting them to realise that how, how many people here know jobs to be done theory... Yep and really getting them to understand that the job you're doing can easily be done by somebody else and these are the alternative solutions that aren't just mirrors of you it's coming from a completely different angle than what you haven't even thought about before and starting those kind of conversations and focusing on these are your actual competitors that you're not really thinking about you start the fear and they're thinking oh hold on we could maybe be disrupted here so I noticed that was an angle that really worked the aspirations one was their data. I said, you could be, you have amazing data here that could be providing insights back to industry to help people, to help people with disabilities and age. You're not using that effectively. So it was the opportunity aspect there that appealed to them as well. What have they done? They've gone and hired data scientists and created a data team. This is in a non-for-profit and also focused now on a customer experience team that are identifying, um, making sure that they're creating experiences that supporting people appropriately. So that's happened in like it's been two years but seeing that change has been really rewarding and was playing on
0: fear and opportunity. In doing a wrapping up here, hopefully we've taken you through to understand that the board have a different language set. They've got a different value set. It's actually mandated that they have that value set which is about return for shareholders. They want what you can deliver for them They just don't need it explained in the way you'd explain it to your colleagues. That's the simple summary that I can go give. If you're coming from the board perspective, hurry up and get yourself into that integral design perspective because your competition are already on that path. And your competition may not be the people that you initially thought that they were. You know, we've seen a whole range of disruptors, you know, there's those lovely quotes, the people who are the biggest people in hotels don't own any hotel rooms. The people who are the biggest in, in cars don't any, own, own any cars. That's happening all over the place. But if you own the customer delight, if you own a positive experience in your service, in your customer's need, then you've got resilience, if all you've been doing is running marketing campaigns which are based on price or a new feature, you've got a really short-term proposition to your customers and that the idea to churn or change is very high. So you've got to work out how to go get something deeper with them and experience is the goal. And hopefully you've picked up some language there. There's probably a few people who in the audience who may not have felt brave enough to go and actually ask a public question. We'll be here afterwards. You could follow up email from us, please. It's a conversation. It's not just meant to be us talking at you. We want to hear what you're what you're thinking. There'll be some more of these that we hold throughout the year. Hopefully you join us on your expedition as you're working to a better future. So thank you very much, and thank you to our panelists.